Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight is Serena Williams' readies for retirement from tennis. An emotional farewell in Toronto last night. We talk about the 23-time Grand Slam champion's incredible impact on her sport and far beyond. We find out how a trip to Rome in the archives of a religious order that ran many residential schools in Western Canada has turned up hundreds of photos that could shed light on the kids in those institutions and specifically those who never came home. We look into an idea that a surtax on owners of homes worth more than a million dollars could help pay for more affordable housing. But first, we dig into new reporting from the Toronto Star on the federal government's decision to invoke the Emergencies Act in February to end weeks of blockades. It sheds light on what advice Cabinet was being given, what information they were considering in the days and hours leading up to that decision. Well, first up, let's head back to Ottawa, a little further east of Toronto, and the the height of the blockade around Parliament and the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act for the first time on February the 14th this past year. A report today from the Toronto Star citing meeting minutes and agendas submitted last week to the federal court raises some interesting new questions about that decision and the circumstances surrounding it. It is part of a case where civil liberties groups are challenging how Ottawa invoked the Emergencies Act. They revealed that the night before, on February 13th, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor told Cabinet that there was, quote, potential for a breakthrough with the occupation around Parliament Hill. According to the Cabinet meeting, meeting minutes, rather, which are not verbatim, uh, Jody Thomas, who was the, uh, the advisor, told Trudeau and his assembled ministers that law enforcement, quote, law enforcement gains have been important and there was potential for a breakthrough in Ottawa. Well, the Office of Canada's Public Safety Minister, who is head on this file, said the advisor was referring to negotiations led principally by the City of Ottawa. Those were obviously ultimately unsuccessful. Um, And the government considered this factor in a decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, so trying to explain exactly what was said. But it certainly provides some new insight, just a bit at least. A lot of those pages were uh, were blacked out, but uh, provides some insight into what may have been going on in those hours before the Emergencies Act was invoked and just what the rationale was behind it. Joining me now with more on this is Michael Kempa. He's an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa and someone who's followed the blockade, the, inv- the invocation of the Emergencies Act, and all of it very closely then and now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. So what do you make of this? I mean, it does provide some insight into what was going on, but this uh, land, a lot of people are landing on this idea of, quote, potential breakthrough. What do you make of it? Well, potential breakthrough, that's very strong language. Um, it is good now that we're starting to get a little bit of the background information dribbling out through the civil court cases, uh, the uh, rights groups bringing court cases against the government for invoking the Emergencies Act. Of course, government does not release as many facts in a civil court as they ultimately will in the public inquiry under Justice Rouleau that will really start gathering some steam in September. But if we're referring to the negotiations between the city of Ottawa and protesters, that was to do with removing trucks from the residential areas of Ottawa and concentrating them around Parliament. That process was moving too slowly to have been deemed a success. Now, Andrew Lawton, Uh, an independent journalist up at True North, has got his book out now. And his account is that the reason that it was not progressing quickly was he argues the police were impeding protesters leaving the area. That's their story. Um, I expect Justice Rouleau will look into that much more closely. Uh, The thing that gives me pause there would be elsewhere in that book, and many of the protesters have claimed that the police were on their side. 
So we can't really have it both ways there. Were the police impeding them, withdrawing, or were they on their side? These are questions for the commission coming up in September. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what emerges from that, certainly. I mean, there were other protests, there were other blockades going on. We think of Coots, Alberta. Obviously, that one has come up. Um, There was certainly the one at the Ambassador Bridge that had just ended at that point. But it does paint a pretty interesting picture just of how complex the situation was. It was not, it was very gray. It was not black or white, was it? No, and it's complicated. The other thing that stood out for me in the documents that we've now got through the civil case, you know, released, filed through the courts, is I think that the federal cabinet has it right where they're discussing the movement and they say there's perhaps 5% of these protesters who are connected and very committed to a a, a more radical movement to change government or uh, overthrow an elite system of government as they may see it. These are people who had ties to the weapons that were found in Coots, Alberta. But this is 5% of the protest. 80% or more of the protests were Canadians who were there on issues of vaccine mandates. And then correctly, these documents, I think, also say that about 15% are what you could call swing protesters. They could go one way or the other and end up sort of on the more mellow side of protesting COVID-19 mandates or be recruited and pulled into that more radical side. The people who see that this is all tied to a global conspiracy of elites, whether it be the World Economic Forum or some other shadowy figure of of, uh, groups of people that are trying to undermine our rights to clear way for extreme profits and so forth and so on. We're very worried about that 15%. We can deal with 5%. If they're joined by 15 more to make a substantial number of people, we've got a serious security threat in this country. What I found interesting about the details that were released or reported on today, first by the Toronto Star, was it it, it presented two different hypotheses, depending on what side of the political spectrum you tend to be on. Mm. One, that it wasn't necessary, or two, that they actually went through a lot of discussion about this, that this was a well-thought-out decision. If they were talking about a potential breakthrough and weighed that, uh, then that lends even more weight to the final decision that was being made. So I've seen both opinions circulating out there today. What do you think? Well, they should have discussed it. Everything should have been on the table. What's important for me is that the same uh, high-ranking civil servant who raised these matters about a potential breakthrough, Ms. Jody Thomas, one of the main security advisors to the prime minister, she raised that issue. And also she herself, two weeks later, did say that the Emergencies Act proved to be absolutely necessary. So for me, it's about you've got to stick with that detail, build that timeline and connect who said what. I would be very concerned to see that there had not been this manner of discussion at a cabinet level and in the integrated security uh, group there. The thing being, no government would ever want to invoke the Emergencies Act. It is not in their interest. It's political dynamite. It is something that basically there is very little political upside to a government invoking such extreme legislation. They would have discussed it very carefully, and it would have been, however you want to analyze it in terms of political gains to be made, their last choice to move in that direction. I'm finding it very hard to follow the argument that it would have been in the interests of the prime minister to jump the gun, ignore something that looked like it could have been a significant breakthrough just because he and his cabinet wanted, for some strange reason, to invoke the Emergencies Act. Another part of the reporting I found interesting was 
a comment that, or at least a reporting in in those in those documents, that uh, there was concern. At least the prime minister had said that he'd been speaking with other people internationally. I imagine the Americans were on that list. That somehow Ottawa was no longer able was losing control of this, or at least that was the perception internationally that uh, that Canada was not able to handle these protests, and that might have been one of the things that they were weighing as well was Canada's international reputation. You know, for a number of reasons, uh, when it came to that decision. Well, absolutely. And, and not only because of our vanity of how others might see us, um, but rather, I mean, doing major international trade in partnership with the United States requires the American government to see us as a stable democracy that can handle our internal affairs and protests in, a, in an expedient type fashion. When President Biden made the statement at the time of the blockade of the Ambassador Bridge into the United States at Windsor, that if needs be, he could offer up some assistance from Homeland Security to help Canada uh, get the situation under control. That was not so much of an offer as it was a promise that this would be given if we couldn't get our own situation under control. That's how I would read it. It's incredibly, you cannot be seen to be a nation that cannot maintain civil order within its borders and expect to do business with the other G7 nations around the world. It's a nice segue, Michael. Coming up next, we'll be talking about exactly what's going on south of the border these days. Uh, We found out more today about the FBI's search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home. Uh, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, was out today uh, doing some explaining, and we'll get to that after this. I personally approve the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland there talking about the U.S. Justice Department uh, asking a court to unseal the search warrant the FBI received before searching the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump. The search warrant was part of an ongoing Justice Department investigation into discovery of classified White House records recovered from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Palm Beach, Florida, Earlier this year, again, Attorney General Merrick Garland, they're saying he played a central role in executing the war. The Washington Post tonight is reporting that classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the FBI, uh, the items FBI agents sought in that search of Trump's home. Uh, Michael Kemp is with us this half hour, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, this has all been an unusual week when it comes to on the justice side of things. Um, were you surprised to see the Attorney General step out today and speak about this so publicly? Surprised, yes, uh, but very pleased uh, in that it is an excellent, excellent response to the former president, Donald Trump's sort of call that this is a conspiracy uh, move on the part of radical Democrats to invade his home through having taken control of the FBI and all of the sorts of um, patently ridiculous uh, rhetoric about the security apparatus of the deep state in the United States and all of that. Uh, You know, the Washington Post put it well, where they say that the attorney general is calling Donald Trump's bluff on this. Now, that sounds like bravado, but it's a very good legal and political strategy. I like the courts and the legal system because it's something I refer to as a cool democratic forum. It slows conversation down. There are rules and procedures, and it forces a very clear fact-based conversation. People who like to peddle in conspiracy and misdirection, they prefer a very hot uh, communicative forum. Put out as many statements as possible. Seize upon key words. 
tossing around word salad and so forth that just confuses people. And in all of that heat and, and, and loss of meaning, it's very easy to align people to one side of the dispute or the other. What we're seeing here with the attorney general is saying, all right, you've impugned the FBI. It's very dangerous to the American Republic to uh, basically encourage American citizens to lose faith in an institution as important as the FBI. So let's put it out there. Let's release the public warrant and show people what we were looking for. It's not like we were looking we were just a couple of couple of binders that the former president took home with him and forgot in his in his briefcase. Let's put it out there what we're looking for. And if you're comfortable with that, Mr. Trump, uh, then carry on with your attack. He knows that what's contained in those warrants will be very, very embarrassing to Donald Trump personally, but may shake the faith. Remember, we spoke about the 5% true believer radicals and then the 15% that could go one way or another. You'll never reach the 5% with a logical argument. You will reach the 15% who may look at those documents and say, well, my goodness, of course, the former president should not have had nuclear documents at his house and other things that will be named in these in these warrants. It's an excellent strategy. I mean, one of the things that was interesting just this week is, I mean, and you talked about it, this is not something, there was a lot of calls for the Attorney General to get out ahead of this uh, because of just how much the vacuum was filled with, as you mentioned, a lot of talk about weaponization of, uh, of of the FBI and so forth, and a lot of doubting the institutions, the inst- very institutions that are sort of the backbone of the of American democracy in some senses. Uh, a lot of attacks on them this week while we were waiting for, for Merrick Garland to come out. But this, this warrant would not been been granted if there were not due costs, right? I mean, this is where this whole conversation sort of went, seemed to have gone off the rails, at least for a certain segment of the population. And I would say, again, it's in that 15%. There are people who would not be aware of how a warrant would be issued. They would assume that the, F, the head of the FBI could simply write his own warrant or her own warrant and carry on with the investigation, showing people that it went through due process standards, signed off by a judge who was, in fact, a Trump appointee himself, will drive home to people that this wasn't some sort of deep, deep democratic state conspiracy to damage the true patriot himself and his and his followers. Uh, it is it's gone through the proper channels and it shows people that the institutions of the state, while not perfect, work better. Um, than any sort of strongman direct system that, uh, you know, people who would like to undermine faith in the democratic state for their own benefit would would circulate. As a criminologist, uh, do you worry about what you saw unfold so far, or what you've seen unfold so far this week in America, where even the most treasured of institutions we saw with the Supreme Court recently as well, is really, they've all fallen now into, into the realm, into the political realm, it seems. Look, I, I, I am always something of an optimist. I think that this is a huge problem. The politicization of all issues, including criminal justice, including policing, as we see here in Canada with the response to the to the Freedom Convoy movement in Ottawa and across the country. These things are very, uh, not just troublesome because they create heated arguments, they distort reality as to how institutions do work, the procedures they go through, and undermine faith in the state. But we are catching up where political leaders are starting to realize, as you see in A.G. Garland in the United States, and to a certain extent, the Trudeau government, having released the cabinet documents, uh, waived cabinet confidentiality for the Rouleau Commission 
that will get underway with real steam this fall, they've realized that it's far better to let the information out than to keep it secret, because in an absence of information, the conspiracy theories that will be invented and will actually gain currency and spread are far more damaging than what the truth very well may be. Michael Kempa, thank you so much. Thank you. I said in my article, I'm terrible at goodbyes, but uh, goodbye. <laughs> Toronto! Serena Williams there. She was in Toronto. Of course, she'd written an article that was published in Vogue a little earlier this week, basically announcing her retirement from tennis at the end of the season, I guess at the end of the U.S. Open. But she was still playing tennis. She was playing in the National Bank Open, uh, which is being held in Toronto right now. So she was, uh, you know, there was hopes that she might go far in this particular tournament. That did not happen. Um, She did, in fact, lose her uh, match last night. But uh, as you saw there, there was a farewell, one of many, the first of many farewells to uh, Serena Williams, no doubt. Again, uh, this week, the 40-year-old announced a tentative retirement, really, a tentative retirement, but really she's sort of stepping away from the game to do other things. Um, And um, it was just interesting to see the kind of reaction already. You get the impression that what a farewell tour this is going to be. So fans packed Sobe Stadium in Toronto last night to watch the 23-time Grand Slam winner to see if she could extend what would likely be, again, her final tournament in this country. Uh, she'd won her first match in more than a year in the previous round, but there would be no fairy tale ending. Uh, Williams losing in straight sets to one of those rising stars in the sport, Belinda Bencic. Um, here is Williams with more after that match. It's been a joy playing in front of you guys all these years, so thank you. Yeah, some emotion there from Serena Williams as well. Now, there are athletes that you just know, as I was mentioning off the top of the show, that when you watch them play or fight or whatever whatever sport it is that they perform in, whether it be Usain Bolt or any number of people, uh, that you're watching history. You're watching one of the greatest of all time. You can tell uh, early on, and Serena Williams just, you knew watching her play that she was, that you were watching someone who's going to be in the history books uh, in their sport regardless. And she dominated her sport in a way that, you know, I, I've watched obviously a lot of tennis over the years. She dominated in a way for a length of time that we probably hadn't seen before. It's also hard to overstate just what kind of impact she's had on not just tennis, but sports and culture in general since she burst onto the scene way back in the late 90s. At the time, if you remember, playing second fiddle to her Grand Slam champion sister, Venus. Those were some of those great matches back in the day between the two sisters for titles. Well, today, a whole generation of young players, many born after Serena won her first Grand Slam, uh, talk about her influence. Here's American Coco Gauff. Yeah, for me, I, mean, I grew up watching her. I mean, that's the reason why I play tennis. And, you know, tennis being a predominantly white sport, it, it definitely helped a lot because um, I saw somebody look like me dominating the game, and it made me believe that I could dominate too. There's American tennis player Coco Goff talking about uh, the influence Serena Williams' career had on her. Well, with more on this and what happened last night in Toronto, I'm joined by Joe Wood. He's Director of Player Development at Tennis BC. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. Good. We, we, are you, you're in Toronto watching the tennis, I gather. Yeah. So it's, uh, I guess it's Friday morning now for me. But uh, yeah, been very, very lucky to be over here this week watching the tennis. Um, yeah, and obviously being at Serena's uh, last match in Toronto last night was was very special. Um, and yeah, she was she was obviously clearly emotional at the end, uh, but she got a great reception, which was uh, which re- was really nice to see. Well deserved. 
Yeah, it was interesting that, I mean, as soon as this article came out, it all of a sudden people realized, well, wait a second, she's playing tennis this week and she's playing tennis in Toronto. So yeah, the first exactly. of her farewells is going to be there. What was it like just to be, I mean, it's almost hard to imagine tennis without her in many ways. So what was it like to, to be in the arena last night and just, or in the stadium last night, and just to see the reaction, both of her and the crowd? Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, I know there was a big push for tickets once she had announced her retirement. People realized she was here. Um, but, you know, it's, she won her first Grand Slam in 98. So, you know, this is a long time she's been playing. She's kind of covered a lot of generations of of, athlete, of tennis players, you know, recreation players, high-performance players, Grand Slam champions. And uh, I think everybody came out just to support her and see her. And, um, you know, she, she, play, she played okay, but, I you know, you could tell – that she is on a farewell tour, um, and it was just yeah, it, the the atmosphere was 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 electric, and the support for Serena was was very evident, um, and yeah, no, it was uh, it was really great to be there and witness that in person. Yeah, I, she came up against a tough opponent too, right? So there was yeah, she did, and Benchic won tonight, and you know, and she, so she's yeah, no, it was it was a tough match for sure. Were you surprised at all by her decision? I know you know about this. I mean, all professional tennis players uh, need to, at some point, decide it's time to do something else, or yeah. at least to, to move away from the pro game. Uh, were you surprised by her her decision or her timing? No, no I think, actually, I, I think it's pretty perfect timing. I think she's been pretty vocal about her becoming a mother, you know, relatively recently, and, the, you know, the struggle she had after that and then coming back which was an amazing feat to even come back after after giving birth and um and everything she went through there um so i think the retirement isn't a surprise uh to me or or necessarily people in tennis uh, i think really it's perfect timing some some athletes tend to push it a little bit further some make the wrong decision like tom brady he seemed to have retired too early and then came back i don't think that's and I think, like you said, this she's not she's not seeing this as a retirement. She, she'll step away from tennis, but she's got she's got an enormous amount of things going on in her life um, that will keep her busy. So yes, yeah. yes I was, wasn't uh, wasn't too surprised at all with the timing. Still, you know, I, I always wondered if she because she was so close to Margaret Court's Grand Slam record of twenty four, yeah. that elusive twenty fourth title that she yeah. still hasn't found yet. That that may have been pushing her and pushing her to try, just try to see if she couldn't. You know, there yeah. wouldn't be that one run where she would win a couple again. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I hope she, I hope she has a good run at the U.S. Open. I really feel like she's made that tournament her own over the years. So I'm excited for for September and you know seeing Serena in New York. You know, kind of under the lights and and hopefully putting on a good show and finishing her career in style. I think that's what everybody wants to see. It's going to be really difficult just because, you know, the women's game is, is great at the moment. There's lots of tough players. and um, But I'd lo- I would love to see her go out with a bang for sure. Oh, it would be. And, and can you imagine if if that's what it was, it was like last night in, you know, the round of 32 yeah. in Toronto, imagine what the U.S. Yeah. Open is going to be like if she goes, if she goes yeah. deep. Yeah, exactly. It'd be absolutely unbelievable. Um, and I, I know people will be, you know, the anticipation around that alone will be massive from now on. So, um, yeah, that's going to be something special for sure. Do you remember the first time you saw her play? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I remember her at the 98 Wimbledon, uh, her and Venus, and and they just looked unbeatable at that time. And it was just, you, you weren't sure if anybody was ever going to ever gonna win anything ever again. They were just so strong, the pair of them. And they had a run even when they were playing doubles together and winning everything. And so I think the, the late 90s was really when I remember seeing Serena and, you know, she's definitely had some highs and lows since then. Um, you know, she's had some outbursts on court. She's had some problems with, with officials and coaches and, and things like that. But ultimately, you know, her legacy will be that she's a, she's a born champion, born winner. She's the greatest tennis player of all time. Um, and she really, she she kind of acts how what she believes in right so yeah i think that's something that you can't take away from her and i know that's something she wants for girls particularly girls and women in sport is to stand up and believe in themselves and believe in what they're doing and that's certainly something she's she's done over the years so yeah good big credit to her for that yeah, it's 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 uh, yeah. The, the idea that she, I mean, the, the, just the longevity, the number of different up and comers that she disposed of over the, yeah. over many 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 years is hard to fathom. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's absolutely incredible. Um, and the the players that she she played against, even like you know Lindsay Davenport. I mean these these are people in the history books now, and Serena's still going. So it's pretty pretty amazing. I'm speaking with Joe Wood. He's the director of player development at Tennis BC. He happens to be in Toronto right now watching the National Bank Open where Serena Williams bid farewell to the crowd last night. What will likely be her last tennis in Canada, not her last trip to Canada potentially, but her last tennis match in this country. And there was a really a big outpouring of support for her and uh, an emotional time for her as well. I guess she's getting a taste of what this farewell is going to be like on court. When we come back, uh, Joel, I'll ask you to put your, your tennis uh, development, uh, player development hat on and tell us what was so good about the way she played her. Could you even teach the way she played? That's next. We're talking tennis. Serena Williams specifically this half hour. Joe Wood is our guest. He's director of player development at Tennis BC, a former pro himself. Uh, he's in Toronto, actually, uh, at the National Bank Open. Witnessed Serena Williams's farewell. Uh, she bowed out of the uh, of the Open yesterday and had a bit of a first farewell on the tennis courts. Uh, of what of what will be many, no doubt, over the next little while. Uh, I was always curious about not being a, a great tennis player myself. I was always curious about <laughs> about the kind of skill set Serena Williams brought to the court. And as someone who trains tennis players, whether any of that can be taught or was it, you know, because she seemed to play what she seemed to be able to do it all. And yet you wouldn't know how to mimic it. Yeah, I think her, you know, her, she was just so explosive. She hit the ball so hard. She hit it flat. She, you know, she was able to hit hit the lines on the court, uh, you know, seemingly at will. Um, you know, and the biggest thing she was able to do early on in her career and even now is, you know, really step inside the baseline and take a lot of balls out of the air. And I think she revolutionized the, the women's game in that respect. You know, players have to to deal with big serves. They had to deal with, with her power and, and really, you know, it's, it's changed, it's changed women's tennis and, you know, it's, it's such an explosive, powerful, powerful sport now. Uh, and I think Serena has a big part to play in that for sure. Um, you know, I was watching, watching the quarterfinals today um, and, 
you know, the the, the girls uh, are amazing at the, the highest level and it, it's great to see. Um, but yeah, Serena, in terms of the way she played, just I think explosive is the word that I, I probably would use to describe it. And that's, you know, girls trying to emulate her. That's what we talk about a lot. You know, it's uh, just a lot of power, full body. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. It is kind of ironic that the ones who finally managed to get her number as she got older were the ones who watched her growing up, like the ones who sort of yep. watched her from the time they were tiny. Yeah. You know, I think of Naomi Osaka and so on, people who'd been born after she'd won her first Grand Slam. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Like I said, you know, early in 98, I believe, was the first time she won a Grand Slam. So, you know, Coco Goff and they were well into the 2000s when they were born. And um, it's pretty amazing that they've, they've, she's playing against them. And um, yeah, yeah. And they've, pro- they've, you know, they've gone on to emulate what she's done in terms of the way she plays, um, which has helped them a lot. Did she did she alter her game much as time went on? Because there was sort of that aura of invincibility about Serena Williams for so long. I mean, there was for so there long. Was, there was just yeah. that aura, aura of invincibility, and then suddenly there wasn't. And and that happens to all athletes, right? But it, it felt like in her case, it. Uh, I'm just wondering yeah. if she had changed the way she played, or what was I, different about it. I actually do, I don't think she changed the I don't think she changed the way she played. Um, I think you know potentially she lost a little bit of power, you know, and so so you know girls girls and the ladies that she was playing against were able to stay in the point a little bit longer so you know make it a bit more physical and and i just i just think you know they they kind of were able to force her into making a few more mistakes and it was always very very high risk and she so yeah i think it was just a case of her getting a little bit older and players able to extend points a little bit longer um and yeah, but you know, she still she still dominates matches um, even now. Um, but I think I think the girls are just staying in the point a little bit longer and just able to outlast her a little bit. Um, but again, I think I've, I've got. I would not be surprised if she made a run at the U.S. Open. The fans there are just going to be just so you know so up for it, and she's going to be you know wanting to win. And we know how competitive she is. So she'll find that extra power from somewhere, I'm sure. It'll um, be, if it happens, yeah. <laughs> what a story yeah. that will be. And, and also just in the way she changed the face. I mean, you talked about Coco Goff. I mean, just the way she changed yeah. tennis in many ways. I mean, tennis is a yeah. very different sport than it was 20 years ago when she was starting out. It is. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm over in Toronto was I was at a, a, a conference with Billie Jean King and we a gender equity conference uh, talking about women and females and girls in sports. And, you know, Serena has helped the movement of women's tennis so much. And, you know, she's I think she's probably close to earning a billion dollars, you know, both in prize money and in. Um, sponsorship deals and everything like that. So it's incredible what she's been able to do from the sport of tennis, con- considering, like you said, where it was 20 years ago. Um, and she has a big, you know, the, the girls that are playing now have a big, big thank you to Serena for that. Um, you know, she really put the game on the map as Billie Jean King did. Um, and, she, you know, she's put the put the tennis on the map for the females for the WTA Tour and that'll be something of a legacy for Serena when she finally 
finally retires. Uh, that, which is uh, and, and sad to say, because I was going to say there's lots of Canadians to cheer for, but I gather that at least at this tournament, uh, both Canadians are are gone for now. At least in the one year, uh, Felix Auger Eliassime is still playing in Montreal, but uh, he Bianca is, yeah. yeah. And, and Andrescu is someone who reminds me a lot of Serena. She plays right. very explosive. She hits the ball very hard and flat. She goes for a lot. She takes balls out of the air and and. Uh, yeah, I mean, she, Bianca had a tough, tough match tonight. It was so close. Um, you know, she really, it could have gone gone either way. Um, but but that, that that's the sport, unfortunately, and she lost. But I think she seems to be in a really positive, positive frame of mind heading into the U.S. Open. Her body seems to be holding up. So that's exciting because I think, again, she, she's, a, she's an amazing player. And, um, yeah, she's going to do great things. Too. I can imagine there's there's no greater compliment to than to be compared to your explosiveness to be compared to, compared to that of Serena Williams. But, yeah, exactly. But, well, yeah. enjoy the rest of the tournament. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your insight into all this uh, tonight. And uh, how great to Absolute have been there. Pleasure. Something I'm sure you'll be able to remember that one for a while. You were there when Serena Williams said her first of many yeah. goodbyes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for your time. And uh, yeah, um, look forward to speaking to you soon. <laughs> This next story is a really fascinating one. The Missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, or the Oblates, ran nearly 50 residential schools, mainly in Western Canada, including the Kamloops Residential School here in BC and the Maryvale Residential School at the Cowessess First Nation in Saskatchewan. Both those schools, of course, are sites of the discovery of unmarked graves uh, last year. Now, the Oblates headquarters are in Rome, and that is where the head archivist of the Winnipeg-based National Center for Truth and Reconciliation arrived recently to spend five days searching through their archives for more documents, personal records, employment records, and so on, uh, to find out more about how the order ran those residential schools. Now, it's rare for anyone to gain access to those archives, and Raymond Frogner wasn't quite sure what he might find. To his surprise, one of the things he did discover was photographs. Lots of them. Hundreds of them. The images apparently are part of an early 20th century photo series sent by priests from various institutions in Canada, including the former Kamloops Indian Residential School and many others. And they could help shed further light on the schools and the kids, and specifically the kids who never made it home. Joining me now is Raymond Frogner. He's the head of archives at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation in Winnipeg. Good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a, you know, obviously some fascinating work that you've done. Um, what, how did this opportunity present itself? It seems like this is something we would have hoped to have done long ago, but I understand that uh, the opportunity finally presented itself for you to be able to go through these archives. Right. Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, we've been dis in discussions with <clears throat> the various um, representatives of the Oblates for, for quite some time. <clears throat> the NCTR was full. NCTR was formed in 2015, but uh, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission before us, um, which was created in 2008, was in discussions and had begun collecting records at that time. And um, over the years, as, as the conversations progressed, uh, it became more and more clear that, uh, you know, a full, accountable and transparent access to the records of the Oblates was the only uh, sort of morally reasonable solution to the situation. Um, the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement had mandated um, the TRC with the responsibility to create as complete as possible um, a collection of records and a resource base for the history and 
the legacy, to study the history and legacy of the residential school system. And the only way that could be done is with uh, complete accountability of the records. So over time, um, the Oblates, you know, came to the full realization of this fact. Um, originally, uh, they were very, very hesitant to release anything regarding personnel files. Um, the Codex Historicus, which were kind of like a daily journal, um, which is mandated under canon law that they be kept. Um, they were also uh, reluctant to produce anything um, uh, from the codexes as well. Uh, so uh, as, as time progressed, uh, like I said, um, and the conversations expanded, um, it became clear that uh, the, the Oblates needed to, to open up their records and, and be more uh, transparent about their activities in managing these schools. And um, to be clear, they, they managed not, um, 48 schools in Western Canada and also some uh, additional schools in the North. So uh, they were by far and away the largest religious order um, when it came to managing residential schools in Canada. Um, <clears throat> the, the trip to Rome, which I think was the original question, um, came about after, uh, I would say maybe a little over a year ago, uh, after some discussions uh, about opening up the records. Um, and uh, I do think that, you know, the, the, the discoveries of Amar gravesites in the spring of 2021 cast a spotlight on, on the activities of the Oblates um, and uh, reluctance to open the records was only, you know, fanning the flames of the discontent about the, that history. So uh, about a year ago, they mentioned that, you know, they had a general administrative archive in Rome. Um, and that was the first time they actually brought it up with us directly. Um, by that time, they'd already come to the conclusion that they would open up the Codex Historicus to us, um, and we'd begun to collect those, um, and that they would also open up to a certain degree their personnel files, which we're still negotiating with them to completely open. Um, but when they mentioned the archives in Rome, um, I had immediately you know, posed a lot of questions regarding the contents of, of that archive, and uh, asked if I could see you know, uh, file lists, finding aids, any other kind of research um, aids that I could acquire to get a better handle on what was actually in that archive. And after mm -hmm. several months of discussion, they, they finally said, well, you know, why don't you just come to the archives in Rome and see for yourselves? So eventually um, that's, you know, that's what we did. In the meantime, as you know, um, you know, uh, elders representing various indigenous communities went to Rome to meet with the Pope who mm -hmm. gave, offered a formal apology at that visit. And then subsequent to that, the Pope came to Canada um, to come to uh, Quebec, Edmonton, and Iqaluit. So um, there have been some um, events in between that also, uh, again, argued for the need to open these records up as completely as possible. And they mm -hmm. all sort of led to the, um, to the final act of my visit to the General Administrative Archives of the Operates in Rome. What was it like to wander in there for the first time and be confronted with all these these records that I know you've been eager to look at? Uh, yeah. What what were you looking for? What were you hoping to find? And uh, what did you find? Um, well, I, I mean, <clears throat> as I said, I had a very uh, loose understanding of, of the contents because the finding aids that the Oblates had kept for these records was not very detailed. Um, <clears throat> so... I mean, ideally, I was hoping to find more information on missing children. Um, one of our, our highest priorities is to understand the final destiny of children who, who have been lost at residential schools. 
but also to further understand the experience of those children at the schools. Um, and finally, of course, um, to fully create um, the context of the history and legacy of those schools with more record keeping and more records. So, I mean, as I said, um, you know, top of my list was, of course, evidence of the children and their experiences. Um, but secondly, just to, to flesh out the context as much as it possibly could. Um, when I got there, it was, it was quite striking. Um, um, the oblates are, are in a comp, they live in sort of a, a compound um, near uh, uh, the Philippine embassy. Right, uh, not far from the Vatican, right? Not too, too yeah. far from the Vatican. I remember that building. It's quite beautiful, if I remember yeah, correctly. And it, yeah, and former, former residence of an Italian nobleman who donated it to them. And um, so going inside, uh, there is uh, the, the reading room, and I could show you, show you pictures sometime, but uh, it has a lot of iconography, Catholic iconography. Um, you know, that the Virgin Mary in the statue is overlooking the reading room tables. When you come into the reading room, there's right. an enormous mural showing um, the founder of the Oblates as, as well as the, the Pope at the time of the founding in 1816. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, Catholic iconography and, and design in, in the building. Um, the records themselves, as the title suggests, are very administrative. Uh, they're broken down into uh, five categories, original manuscripts, uh, photographs, provinces, that is the provinces of the various missions, not the Canadian provinces, um, ad administrative records, um, and photographs. So um, what I found was, um, oh, and also personnel files, but what I found was um, that the, the most revealing records are, to my surprise, the photographs. Right. Um, there was a considerable amount, I would say, between oh, 750 to 1,000 black and white photographs that were sent back to Rome um, documenting uh, various residential schools across the country, uh, including lots of photos of children unidentified. So, uh, you know, I was quite excited to see all these and, you know, um, to no one's surprise, the, the archivist who was in charge of the records really had no idea of the significance of those photographs when I was excitedly explaining to him that these could be photos of children that thought, are thought to have been lost at schools. They, they really had no understanding of the, of the history of residential schools in Canada at all. So um, the discussion turned to how quickly could we um, digitize these photographs um, and potentially uh, what did the Oblates think of returning those photographs to the communities that, doc that where the children came from. So right. those discussions are ongoing, um, but they were very open to the fact uh, that they do need to digitize the records make them available to communities so that they can identify the children. And will the, the jury is still out on whether or not they're open to replug and returning the records, or returning the photographs. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll stop you very quickly. My guest here is Raymond Frogner, head of archives at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. We'll take a quick break. We're talking about uh, work he's done uh, at the Oblates in Rome, where they opened up the archives of residential schools, specifically those in the West and some in the North. Uh, the archives of those, or at least the, the documentary archives that they have on in their possession back in Rome, uh, and just some of what he's found, including up to a thousand photographs and some photographs of, of residential schools whose names will now be familiar to many Canadians as well. We'll talk about just how much that could add to what we already know or don't know about those residential schools after this.
Our guest this half hour is Raymond Frogner. He's the head of archives at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. We've been talking about a trip to Rome that he made recently uh, to look through the archives of uh, of, of the Oblates who uh, were responsible for running residential schools, specifically out west and in, in the north of the country as well. Uh, and just some of what he f- discovered, including, uh, to his surprise, the most revealing perhaps was a collection of photographs, up to a thousand photographs. Uh, Raymond, I understand that some of these photographs actually involve uh, residential schools that have become very familiar to Canadians over the past uh, 12, 12, 18 months now. Yes, correct. Um, there were photographs from uh, Kawases, Kamloops, um, uh, Penelicate, St. Mary's, Stolo, Williams Lake. Um, many of the communities that are now undergoing um, uh, different investigations into unmarked burial sites. Uh, so I think, I, I think it was no small discovery. And um, as I said, the next step would be to digitize and make them available to communities as quickly as we possibly can. Yeah, you're hoping communities will be able to help you identify at least or, or, or tell some of the more of the story behind those photos. Yes, yes, I have, I have no doubt um, that we've done this before and we're actually working on, a, on a, a sort of a participatory description app that we're going to put onto our website that will allow communities to log in and then supply names and descriptions to photographs that are undescribed. That's how I think we can do this. When it came to the personnel files, I'd imagine some of just how those who were working there described um, life there would have been revealing. But I, I gather that that it was quite uh, administrative, as you mentioned, that there wasn't a whole lot in there about life at the school, about the yeah. children there. That's right. It was a fo- it was a focus on the on the missionary or the priests themselves. So they talk about the. Um, their life as a novice priest, as you know, their application to become a priest, and all the all the steps that go into getting recognized, um, the obediences, which are the assignments from Rome to the missionary um, to go somewhere out in a mission of somewhere in the world. Um, so it wasn't always; it was definitely not exclusively Canada. Um, there's oblate missions around the world, and the obediences that come from Rome um, could have potentially sent a, a priest to any any corner of the of the of the planet, really. Um, but generally speaking, you know, it made sense to see that the obediences of you know priests that came out of Canada were to go to other places in Canada, such as residential schools. So you know, there was the the obediences, the the the, the novice admin, admin, admission into the order, and then the services. So. It was basically documenting the life of the missionary. Um, right. So even, um, and I did have a list of, of you know, like uh, priests who have been convicted of crimes, particularly crimes that involved the abuse of children. And even in those cases where I was able to find the personal files of those priests, they nevertheless just documented very, in a very administrative way, the fact that they fulfilled their obligations. Um, and it's called the formation or the, um, the various phases of the, the life of a priest. Um, right. And if they left the order, you know, that's where the file ended. So not much not much there that could tell you uh, more detail about what may have happened or what was going on in the schools at the time. That's right. There's, seen, there's occasionally veiled references to priests having difficulty with children, but even there, um, never, you know, any kind of direct discussion or, or information about what happened to the children. Um, it was always the focus was always on the the missionary life of the priest and you know the administration of those responsibilities. 
So to sum it up in terms of just your first experience with this, what could, you know, what is, what has did produce some really interesting items, uh, were you satisfied with what you found or do you feel like there might be more there or, or, you know, how did you walk away from that experience? Um, I would certainly think there is more there. I mean, the manuscript collection was quite disappointing. Um, you know, there are some very um, prominent names in, in the, the Catholic um, pantheon that was, that, you know, that worked with the Oblate Order in Canada. Um, Emile Gourard, um, Alexandre Taché, um, Gaston Carrier, these are all, and they've all, they all published manuscripts. Um, and to my surprise, none of them, none of the top five or six, you know, authors of important Catholic manuscripts from the Albert Order were at, in the manuscript collection in Rome. Um, we can find those uh, more effectively in Library and Archives Canada and um, the Archives Nationale du Québec. So, uh, I would say for the manuscript collection, it was a bit of a letdown. The personnel files, um, I, when I came back from Rome, I, I did a similar search for the personnel files uh, for certain priests that I found in Rome. And not to my surprise, I found that the, the personnel files in the local province archives that are now located in the Provincial Archives of Alberta, uh, the, the Société Historique de Saint Boniface, in those personnel files was much more information. Um, so to my mind, I think um, communities looking for information on the lives of children uh, and any other kind of context they'd like to understand about the history would, would more effectively focus their attention on um, the local personnel files that are still kept in the provinces, De Chatelet, St. Boniface, French Archives Alberta, uh, BC Museum and Archives. Um, I would say that there's probably a lot of information in the administrative files that I wasn't able to see. I'm thinking of things concerning, for example, um, policies. What were the policies and procedures of the Oblate Order, especially regarding priests that were found guilty of, you know, abusing children or, or just misbehavior of one kind or another. Um, I'm, I have no doubt that there's, there must be policy and discussion in the administrative files in Rome about what is to be done about these situations? As a very last yes or no question, do you have a plan to go back? Uh, well, I would, I, I would very much like to see, as I said, the digitization of those photographs. Um, mm. we're, out, we're now in discussion with um, representatives to, to see what can be done about opening up those files, digitizing them and getting us copies. If that requires going back, I, I suppose so. <laughs> um, but uh, hopefully, um, I was, to my surprise, nothing there was digitized. There was no digitization program whatsoever. Um, but then when I think about it, it's a private archive. It serves its purpose, which was just to document the lives of those missionaries. Well, I, it, fascinating that you managed to have a look and found what you found, uh, specifically the photographs, and uh, looking forward to see what, uh, what, that, what materializes from that. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Great. Well, thanks for having me. There is perhaps no single issue surrounding the affordability crisis in this country that is quite as crucial or as controversial as housing. For an increasing number of Canadians, the idea of owning a home is seemingly out of reach, and the rents they pay because of it continue to increase. Now, there are lots of opinions out there about how that can be fixed. You just need to work harder, some say, save more, and that dream of attaining the property ladder, of taking that step onto the property ladder can come true. But the reality for many is that getting on that housing ladder now is far more prohibitive uh, than it was in the past. 
And the single biggest issue in this country, in some senses, has been that huge spike in the value of real estate. And it has, in fact, benefited those who bought it at a different time when housing was, in fact, relatively more affordable. Never cheap, never easy, but more affordable. And they've earned handsome profits on their real estate investments without much in the way of effort. In fact, all you have to do is sit there and watch the value of your property grow. I'm one of those people, having bought back in 2007, 2008. But it's not sustainable. Can we continue to have a situation where timing determines the haves and the have-nots when it comes to having a roof over your head with a sizable dash of how much one can rely on family money to overcome those obstacles? There are lots of ideas out there about what to do. My next guest has one of them. Joining me now is Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health. He's founder of Generation Squeeze and author of an article in the latest edition of McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse, Taxing Million Dollar Homeowners Can Help. So what's he talking about? He's joining us now to tell us. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure to join the show. So explain this idea to me because it does it does when you read through the article, it makes a perfect amount of sense. But this would be a tax, a tax, a surtax, really, on all homes worth more than a million dollars. Yeah, well, let's just end the article there. You just said it makes perfect amount of sense. I think we've, you know, that's all we need to hear. And uh, we've won the day. I know, no, I, I jest. So the idea is that about 10 to 12 percent of Canadians are uh, amongst the, the, the group of residents of this country living the most affluent principal residences. In other words, only 10 to 12% of us live in homes above a million bucks. Full disclosure, that includes me out in Metro Vancouver. And many of us who live in those homes have actually seen our home value rise to that level after having bought it some time ago. So we bought it when it was more affordable. We have seen skyrocketing home prices. We have created in Canada a, a dialogue about how rising home prices are harmful when it comes to housing affordability. And we're working hard to try and address that. But we haven't flipped the conversation on its head and also said, but wait a sec, rising home prices aren't uniformly harmful. For those who are already in the housing system, it's making them wealthier. People like me are getting more equity. And if something that's harming others is making people like me better off, more wealthy, more financially secure, might we not ask that constituency, especially benefiting those in the you know, minority in these million dollar plus homes from coast to coast to contribute slightly more to do two things. On the one hand, try and use our tax policy right now. We should talk about it more, how it's currently incentivizing people to bank on high and rising home prices for their savings down the road. It's incentivizing us to treat housing as a, as a commodity and investment strategy rather than just a place to call home. And in the process of trying to deter that, that cultural attitude about housing, how can we also then raise some revenue to invest in some deeply affordable purpose-built rental, cooperative housing that would be in reach for what locals are actually earning, especially those who are starting out in the housing market, because they're the ones so damaged by rising home prices that lock them out of ownership, make them compete for scarce rental that drives rent up. And it's just so challenging for their financial situation, making mm -hmm. hard work, not pay off like it used to. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about something, a timing lottery, literally, if you were if you were lucky enough to buy when it was more affordable than it is now, and let's not make any mistake about that, it is much harder now to save up for, an, for a home to get on the property ladder, so to speak, than it was back when, um, that a lot of younger people these days are left holding lottery tickets, and they know their number will never come up. So this is sort of an idea of equity of sharing the winnings to some extent. Uh, how would it work for the homeowners? Because I gather by looking through your idea, it's actually not that uh, prohibitive. It's not that uh, you're not asking that much of, of homeowners in this country who have won this timing lottery. 
Exactly. So we're talking about a modest surtax only on the value of homes above $1 million. So if you reside in a home right now that is valued less than a million dollars by your provincial property tax evaluator, you would not be subject to this tax. On the value of between one and one and a half million, we'd pay 0.2%. So for example, if your home is worth $1.1 million, the extra tax would be $200 a year. Let me say that again, just 200 bucks a year. And you could defer it if you wanted to until the sale of your home. And the value of the tax goes up there after. There's a progressive rate. So when you get to 1.8 million, it's 2,500 bucks, 2 million, 3,500 bucks. But at the level of 2 million, we're talking about just like 2% of Canadian households, like the very, very elite of household wealth in terms of your principal residence. And if you think about like a middle earner these days, makes around 60-ish grand if you're doing full-time work, uh, and you're going to be paying at least 10000 in in federal and provincial income taxes as a middle earner. And we're talking about someone in like the top 1% to 2% of households paying, you know, 3500 uh, as a as a surtax in terms of their housing wealth and trying to put a price on housing inequity. I think that's a, a useful comparison for your listeners to consider. And what would you do? And this is always the uh, the billion dollar question in this case. What what happens to the money? How does it get spent? Because there's always suspicion, of course, when you start to pay taxes, where exactly is the money going to be spent wisely? And will it be spent on what it should be spent on? Yeah, this is such a great question. So on the uh, yeah, the first answer is that because we're talking about taxing housing wealth more, it would make sense to say that, oh, housing wealth inequality is causing unaffordability for others not yet in the market. Those who are renters. So it's hurting young people, in particular, newcomers of any age. And so we've estimated that the revenue that we're talking about raising, about $5 billion a year, could go directly to... Uh, uh, building 90,000 new units of cooperative and purpose-built rental housing and um, rejuvenating 60,000 low-income uh, low uh, rental units now and ensuring that they're perpetually affordable going forward. So in other words, 150,000 deeply affordable units and do that in one election cycle and have resources thereafter year over year to keep investing in affordable housing uh, to restore the stock of that supply. And at the same time, though, I do want people to know that it, this is something that is disproportionately going to impact those who've been in the housing market for some time. And that's going to mean, in particular, a baby boom generation. That is sort of in terms of the lottery of timing, housing was so much aff more affordable for regular folks back in the day um, when baby boomers were young adults. And then over their lives, when they got in as waitresses and bus drivers, uh, often in cities like Vancouver and Toronto and elsewhere in the country, they've seen their assets become so much more valuable and, and turn many of them into like the global 1%. You only need like a million dollars or so in assets to be part of the global 1%. Housing has really done that for a bunch of regular folks. And insofar as that aging population right now is having concerns about, are we accessing enough medical care? Is there enough extended long-term care available? I could imagine actually this being a great way to ensure that our aging population knows it wants more of this healthcare service and extended long-term care service, and they haven't yet paid for it, that actually their housing wealth and a taxation of those who've been especially fortunate that could ensure we could create that for that demographic and ensure we don't leave the bills for their kids and grandchildren. And this would have, I imagine, just because of where those million-dollar homes tend to be, this would have a disproportionate effect in certain parts of the country. Would this be handled by provinces? For instance, would BC handle BC or Vancouver handle Vancouver? Is that how it would work? No, it wouldn't happen at the regional level. That's going to create a range of inefficiencies uh, so that we would discourage that. 
In all honesty, constitutionally, this is a place in which the federal government could ensure a national reach. Uh, If they were to follow our recommendation, have this modest surtax kicking in at home value above a million dollars and the the early surtax so low. Remember, I said at 1.1 million, a tax of 200 bucks. And almost no homes in Atlantic Canada and Saskatchewan and Manitoba would be subject to it. Um, yes, there are going to be more homes in BC and Ontario in particular that are subject to it, but that's the entire point, because these are the places that have most lost control of home prices. And for those who are actually now amongst that rare group of people living in million dollar homes, this isn't the norm. We have to think it's the norm when you're in Vancouver and in Toronto, but it's not. It's just about 10, 12% of Canadian households. It actually is a signal of affluence. And we're we're really, in one part, wanting to raise revenue to address you know, to invest in deeply affordable housing, raise revenue for important social benefits. But we also think this public policy we're proposing, this switched, this adaptation to tax policy, can help us have a conversation in Canada about who's affluent. So many people are writing to me, but, you know, a, a $1 million home in Waterloo, that'll buy you a starter house with three bedrooms. That's not rich. And I respond to this person and, and she said, like, you know, that starter home with three bedrooms in Waterloo for many a young person now starting it as like a luxury that they don't think is in reach. And when it was in reach in earlier years, and for those who bought it, the fact that it is now worth a million dollars has made them more affluent. It is transforming class dynamics. Let me give you one concrete example. And I'm not going to answer. I'm just going to ask your listeners to, to ponder it. We've been polling people, trying to get a sense of like, who's rich, who isn't. So imagine a senior with a, a low income around 22,000, that's not actually around the poverty line, but they live in a home that they own outright worth a million bucks. Are they poor or are they rich? Or take a young person, mid thirties, a lawyer, you know, they you know, become a partner, they're making 200 plus grand in earnings, that puts them in the top few percent of the country, but they're a renter in a big city and they are struggling to find uh, a rental home that has enough bedrooms for their two kids. Are they rich? Are they poor? And we need to really be wrestling with how access to home ownership and the security of tenure that it gives people is such a uh, a big factor now in determining sort of affluence. And we, in the past, like a middle-class expectation could have been that security of housing. But today it is not in reach, even sometimes for higher earners, let alone middle earners, let alone working poor, et cetera. My guest this half hour is Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health. He's just written an article in uh, McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar home owners can help. We're discussing that idea. When we come back, uh, you mentioned election cycles, and I wanted to bring that up as well. Uh, Politically, how viable would this be? Can it be? Will politicians listen? Taxes are always uh, an unpopular thing when it comes to politics. We'll get to that after this. We're speaking with Paul Kershaw. He's a professor at UBC School of Population and Public Health, founder of Generation Squeeze. He's just written an article in uh, the latest edition of McLean's magazine called Canada's Housing Crisis is Getting Worse. Taxing million-dollar homeowners can help. He's been explaining exactly how that would work. Uh, you mentioned election cycles earlier, uh, not in the same context, um, but this, this, these are always tough sells uh, to politicians taxes of this sort, because, of course, uh, people who own million-dollar homes in this country vote, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, how do you convince policymakers that this is fundamentally a wise move? I think there's two parts to that answer. There's engaging policymakers and elected officials in particular to let them know, actually, that 
they need not be as nervous as they often communicate they are about the idea in the world of politics, because there's actually more of a groundswell of support from coast to coast to coast for this kind of thinking than I think most of us recognize. And the second, though, is to say any nervousness that a politician expresses does reflect a broader cultural dynamic. And I do want to lament on your show, and I lament it in a range of places now, that Canadians are risking being a country of residents who want more stuff, more medical care, more affordable housing, more childcare, um, et cetera. But then the moment we talk about how we're going to pay, we're like, no, no, don't die, don't raise taxes. We cannot be a country that wants more but doesn't want to pay for it because that is an intergenerational unfairness at its most obvious where we just simply leave the bills for those who follow. So I founded Gen Squeeze to be a force for generational fairness. Check us out at gensqueeze.ca. Check out our Hard Truths podcast as well because we can't be uh, tolerating intergenerational inequity just as we can't be tolerating racism, classism, sexism. Intergenerational unfairness is another ism or systemic problem. And it's at the heart of our taxation. But... To your question, what do politicians think? There have been a range of knee-jerk reactions from all, you know, whether it's the NDP in BC, the Conservatives in Ontario, the Liberals in Ottawa. I just did all three parties. Yay, I'm not partisan. And they're nervous about it. But we've done some public opinion polling that increasingly we're going to be able to showcase that for this uh, particular idea, over 60% of Canadians support the idea of having a surtax on homes over a million dollars. Uh, it's particularly high in Atlantic Canada and in the prairies where there are actually fewer million dollar homes. It's over a majority, even in BC and Ontario. You can win elections with those numbers. And what's especially interesting, I think, is actually support is really high amongst people who self-identify as living in million dollar homes. When you say, hey, let's put a surtax on the top 10% of uh, households in terms of the value of their principal residence, a large majority, in the 70% range, if I recall correctly, of people in million dollar homes say, yeah, that's a good idea. But the moment you tell them, oh, by the way, you are in that top 10% if you're in living, you own a home that's over a million bucks, they're like, oh, I didn't think you meant me. And that's the rub. We have a range of people, I think, at this stage, we need to have a hard conversation about who's affluent and who isn't. This takes us to the same combo before your break. And I think we can reach into the hearts and minds of more Canadians and say, ah, asking a modest amount more from people who are in million-dollar home and recognizing that that is relatively rare in Canada can be a big part of the solution. Because it feels as if, and you'd created Generation Squeeze a while back, uh, Generation Squeeze continues to get squeezed, and it, one wonders uh, how tenable a situation it is. For that younger demographic, how tenable? The, the, the summary is, you know, those in their 20s, 30s, even early 40s, they've gone to post-secondary more, paid more for the privilege to land jobs that pay less after adjusting for inflation. They less often have extended health coverage and pensions from their jobs. They then face housing market where average home prices have gone up hundreds of thousands of dollars. They have to, they're priced out of ownership for longer so they compete for more rent. Their rents are on the rise. So they are financially pinched at the moment they need to start their families. And that squeeze, that vice grip grows tighter and tighter because childcare has cost another rent or mortgage size payment. I'm delighted that the $10 a day idea for a national child care program that Gen Squeeze branded over a decade ago has finally been adopted by the federal government. And so we are making historic investments that, you know, that we haven't seen in a generation to ensure that child care never does cost another mortgage size payment in the future. That's great. Uh, but still, this is the, the financial squeeze younger Canadians find themselves in. And then it's tightened still further 
by the fact that they inherit larger government deficits and environmental deficits uh, than in the past. And that is just a lousy legacy to be leaving to younger and future generations. And I, I talk about this with my baby boomer and slightly older parents and family members. And, and I've had enough time with them now that I'm getting them nervous about the legacy that they're leaving. It's not the legacy they want to leave for their kids and grandkids. And that's why something like this modest surtax on housing inequity, this, this price on housing inequity, just like a price on pollution is going to be so important to the legacy of the baby boom generation because we are at a moment where as a society over the lives of baby boomers we've consumed more the atmosphere's scarce capacity to absorb carbon pollution than we are leaving behind there's so much so little of it left for younger people we've absorbed more the housing system's ability to produce wealth and left so much less affordability in our footsteps and we need to get on fixing that now because history books will not write well about the legacy that is at risk of being left in the current context. Paul Kershaw, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Have a great day. You can read Kershaw's piece in the August edition of McLean's on newsstands now. Look for a cover story about how BC is learning to live with relentless wildfires. And you can always visit mcleans.ca for daily updates about what you need to know. 